Okay, so welcome everybody to, we have a double header, Parshiot Behar and Bechukotai. Um, we also are hoping to do some work in the book of Ruth, and um, I think the Parshiot are going to take us in many different directions, and hopefully we'll be able to bring it all together. I'd like to dedicate our learning today, Lelui Nishmat Moshe Ben Le'ah, a very dear friend's father, Alav HaShalom. Um, may he um, have a very high aliyah. Also for the refuah shelema of Tamar Bat Huta, of Shoshana Bat Margalit, and Chaya Bat Yafa Esther. Um, may everybody have a full and um, recovery and heal to great strengths. Okay, we're going to start right away. We'll start with the first pasuk of Parashat Behar because it happens to anchor us very nicely. Um, it starts with Vaidaber Hashem El Moshe Behar Sinai Lemor. So just so we know this, and we're already reaching the end of Sefer Vayikra, but still the Torah is reminding us that all of this is taking place at Har Sinai. We are still in this place. We are still in this space. And this is the place and space that the Torah wants us, the reader, today to be in. It's as if we are still at Har Sinai. And the objective is that we want to be able to go, we're gonna see soon, we're gonna to wanna to go into Eretz Yisrael. It's the time period that we're in. The Omer is gonna take us from Mitzrayim to Har Sinai, from the Yetziah, from the Haggadah, from the Pesach experience to Har Sinai. It seems like it's gonna take us to the pinnacle, but then we come to a recognition that Har Sinai is not the final destination. The final destination is really Eretz Yisrael. And so when we begin to read this, we see, speak to Bnei Yisrael and tell them, Ki tavo'u el ha'aretz. And we're going to have a bunch of agricultural laws. And ki tavo'u, I believe, means not when you come to the land, but the causative key meaning the purpose for you coming into the land that I am going to noten lachem even the word noten is a palindrome it could be read backwards and forwards there is this reciprocity that's being highlighted here the land is not just a destination it's a place that I'm taking you to specifically so that our relationship, says Hashem to us, could be a reciprocal one. And how is that going to work specifically? It seems as if the earth is going to perform a sabbatical. It even seems as it seems as if the land herself is performing the mitzvah. And when the land does this shavta, we'll talk about that minute, that's a Shabbat to Hashem. So we have to talk about a few of these ideas. Veshavta ha'aretz. 
the land is returning. You could say maybe the land is doing teshuvah. Let's be clear that at this point we're still in the desert and it is we who are returning to the land. But the way the Torah is expressing these mitzvot, it sounds that it's not just a return to the land, it's a return of the land. And what that means when we read the words shavtah aretz, it means that it seems like the land is returning to something, to an original, to an ideal, to a primal place, to a primal space. And that is what God sees as Shabbat. So on the practical level, we're talking about the sabbatical year. In verse 3, it says six years you will seed your fields, and six years you will um, prune your vineyards. All of this is the agricultural part. But then it goes and says on the seventh year, the seventh year is a Shabbat Shabbaton. This word Shabbat Shabbaton is uh, reserved normally to describe Yom Kippur. So we're starting to hear words like Shavta, which sounds like Teshuvah, and Shabbat Shabbaton, which we start to think of the Yom Kippur. And it's not just me who's hearing these words. What's going to happen if we get to verse 8, where it starts to say, and you're going to count seven Shabbatot Shanim, after there are seven cycles of six years and a sabbatical, six years and a sabbatical, after you count that for seven cycles, what's going to happen? There's going to be the sound, the shofar teruah, a blowing of the shofar. And when is this shofar specifically going to be blown? I think we already had the groundwork laid for us in the previous Pesukim. Of course, it's going to be on Yom Kippur. And so there's this idea that's starting to, to come across and on, on a level of why is the land doing Teshuvah? Or I often get, what did the land do? Why does the land have to do Teshuvah? And there could be some ideas that either it was involved in the sin of Cain, maybe, because the land patzta et piha, she opened her mouth, she took she took the blood from the hands of Cain. It seems like the earth played an active role, but more than anything else, what we're going to see and what we're going to speak about a lot today is the land and the people follow a parallel trajectory, meaning what happens to the land happens to the people, and what happens to the people, the land is affected by that. This relationship that we have that's tied to our land, an easy way to understand it is if we don't behave, then there will be a famine, then the earth will not respond. The earth will not give her yivula. We're going to talk about that word yovel also in a minute. So especially now that we're coming into the, uh, towards the end of our counting the Omid, we also have this seven years, 
seven cycles. We're going to count seven weeks in seven cycles of seven weeks. And then we're going to get to our summit. We're going to reach the top of this mountain that we've been uh, climbing for these seven weeks. And just so that you see it here while we're still in Parashat uh, Behar, you'll see that on Yom HaKippurim, which is, was in the 10th Pasuk, there's going to be a shofar bechol ha'aretz. A sound of a shofar is going to go um, coursing through the entire land. Vekidashtem. And we are going to sanctify the 50th year. Ukratem deror. This is where our liberty bell gets its uh, um, terminology. Proclaim freedom throughout the land. Let freedom ring. That comes from here, from Parashat Behar. Ukratem deror ba'aretz. And then it's going to say, Yovel hi tihiyelahem lachem. This whole process of seven sevens and then blowing the shofar, this process is going to be called a yovel. In English, it's translated as jubilee, yobeli, yobel, jubilee. And veshavtim. And each man is going to return to his portion, to his family. It starts to be like as if the sound of the yovel is creating this huge rewind where each person goes back to their portion and then back to their family land, back to their um, tribal uh, familial area. There's this return to the place where we initially came from. And before we go further and really understand what the yovel is, there's one piece I'd like you to see, which go back to verse 6 in Parashat Behar. It says, the Shabbat of the Aretz is going to be for you to eat, but at the same time, because on the sabbatical year, you're not allowed to collect and put it in baskets and buckets and storehouses. You just have to let the fruit be out there. You can take it as well as Others can come and help themselves to it. But the language that's used is, it's lecha, le'avdecha, le'amatecha, le'sichircha, le'toshavecha, hagarim imach. Even the behema and the chaya, it's going to be available to all. Something else is taking place during the sabbatical year that I want us to be sensitive to, and that is that this is a time where we're going to make, I had told you that the seven sevens, and it's a Shabbat, and there's Teshuvah, and it's Yom Kippur, but a big component of this Yom Kippur, of this return, of this coming back to the land and coming back of the land, is going to have, is going to involve these horizontal relationships. It's not just about our climbing the summit and reaching the top of the mountain and becoming our best selves and all of that. There is a component that says you must interact. Yes, you must go to your field and as you're picking up your fruits and your vegetables, at that time, you're going to encounter your community there and you're going to engage, and you're going to merge thoughts and ideas. This, All of this is part of 
what Hashem is telling us we're coming to the land for. We're not just coming so that our land could rest. We're coming so that in resting our land, we are building relationships and communities and all of this on a horizontal level. Now, as we move forward, and I feel like the Torah is beckoning us to really go into Megillat Rut, which takes place during the agricultural cycle. It's so much embedded in the land and its produce. If we turn, let's go for a minute. Um, If you could leave your ribbons or a marker in Parashat Behar, I'm going to spend a little time um, actually, before we go into the book of Ruth, maybe I want to just give you a little bit of a rounding out so we get a sense of what's really taking place. When the Torah says to blow this yovel, to blow this horn, and it tells us that it is taking place, all of this at Har Sinai, yovel and Har Sinai have a very close connection. And I often reference this pasuk, so I hope you'll be familiar with it. When I repeat it, I actually may have a marker for it here. And that is, okay, good, I do. If you want to follow and see it in the book of Shemot, chapter 19, it's in verse 13. If you're in the blue books, it's page 404. The Har Sinai experience that I often reference, that I often have, uh, um, I don't know if the right word is difficulty with, but God had told Moshe, you go up the mountain and the people can't come. This we've spoken about a lot. And he keeps reminding him, and Moshe says, I know already, I told them already, and God says, go down and tell them again. And then he says at the end of verse 13, something that we sometimes aren't so aware of. He says, I don't want you to think that this encounter, that this religion, that this engagement, that this revelation is something intended only for Moshe. I want you to be aware that that this shofar, that this yovel, that this jubilee, the yovel, is a type of ram. And that ram horn, when that ram horn is sounded, we call the name of the horn the yovel because that's the name of the animal it comes from. God says, when that yovel is blown, they will have their time. They will have their chance. They will come up the mountain. And we know that this doesn't happen. And we know that the people end up retreating and they end up recoiling. But now that we're learning about the Yovel again, God is saying, I'm going to give you another chance. When the Jubilee year, the 50th year, and this is for us to own, the 50th year after completing seven cycles of seven is going to be tantamount to this Yovel which allows us to come close and engage face-to-face with God. Seven sevens, we're coming upon Shavuot, seven cycles of seven weeks is going to bring us to Shavuot, 
which we say is the time of Matan Torah. So what God is saying is that Har Sinai experience was not a one and done. It's something that is perpetual, is something that is continuous. And how we could engage and we could continue and we could reaccess that experience is through this thing called Yovel. So whether it's the 50th day to get to Shavuot or the 50th year of the sabbatical, I'm going to give you one more. If you have a um, Tanakh in front of you and you go to the book of Yehoshua, you could cry from the perfection that is Tanakh. If you go to Yehoshua chapter 6, it starts to talk about the city of Yericho. This is going to be the first city that we are going to conquer when we come into the land. It is the, the Kitavo El Haaretz. This is the exact fulfillment of coming into the land. And what does it say in Yehoshua chapter 6? It says that the first city we have to come to is Yericho. And it wasn't just closed. It was sogeret ume sogeret. It was sealed shut. Nothing goes in, nothing comes out. And Hashem tells Yehoshua, I'm going to give you Yericho and her kings and all of her um, soldiers I am going to deliver them into your hands. And there's nothing, this is nothing short of spectacular. Our first encounter with an enemy in Eretz Israel, our first Kitavo, Yericho is the first place that we're going to come to, the first city that we're going to come to when we cross the Jordan. The instructions in order for us to be able to be victorious in order for us to be able to break down those walls where nothing goes in and nothing comes out. This is, this is a siege of massive proportions. And of course the Torah is not just talking about a physical wall and a physical block where nothing could go in and nothing could come out because the Torah is going to be very sensitive to understand that we have our own physical walls and our blockades and he's going to tell us exactly how to make those walls come crumbling down. And he says, you need to take seven kohanim and they're going to take seven shofarot and you know what the shofarot are called because if you have your Tanakh in front of you, you'll do a little yelp of excitement because they're called Shifa Shofarot Hayovlim. The Shofarot that we're going to use when we come into Eretz Israel are going to be called Shofarot Yovlim. Shofarot, the same exact Jubilee Shofar that we're going to blast in the 50th year the same shofar that was supposed to be blasted on Har Sinai, that shofar is going to be our ticket into the new land, into our kitavo el haaretz. And you know what we're going to do? We're going to take it lifnei haaron. We're going to uh, go in front of the aron of the aron, and on the seventh day. We're going to encircle the... So every day we encircled the city one time and blew the shofar one time. 
But on the seventh day, here's your seven sevens. On the seventh day, you're going to circle the city seven times. And you're going to blow the shofar seven times. And here's where you need to hold on to your hats from the perfection that is Tanakh. Vehaya bimeshoch keren hayovel. Remember, we had said in the book of Shemot, we had said bimeshoch hayovel. Here we have also bimeshoch hayovel. When you hear the blast of the yovel, because there was a sound of a shofar in Har Sinai. There's a sound of shofar, shofar teruah here in our perasha, coming into the land. We are going to, uh, uh, um, what's that word? Like, like to enter in a, in a fashion that is exacting when you hear kol shofar, and now here's the, I think, the nicest part of the whole thing. Yari'u kol ha'am. Everybody in the nation, yari'u, from the word tirwa, has to make the, a sound. Tirwa gedola. Every person is going to make a tirwa sound. We're not just going to blow a shofar. We're going to be a shofar. This is what's going to get the walls to come crumbling down. What am I even talking about? The Torah is giving us a direct how-to. How to come into the promised land. How to cross the threshold. How to get through barriers. How to break through walls. It's not just kisham achem. Yes, you need to listen to the sound of the shofar coming from the external inside into the internal. But then what has to happen? Yari'u. Every person's going to make a sound that is a tiru'a What comes from within us should sound like the sound of a tiru'a. And then it says, that's what's going to make these impossible walls come crumbling down. And of course, it's no surprise for those of you with highlighters and a Tanakh, you have an extra little bonus here. The word Shiva is going to appear exactly Shiva times, seven times. Shiva, Shiva, Shevi'i, Sheva, Shiva, Shiva, Shiva. If in, in, in a course of four verses, from verse four through verse eight, that word's going to appear seven times. The entire perfection and the message that the Torah is giving us is it's telling us there is a path. There is a way, and why I want to bring up now Megillat Rut so specifically is because this is basically the story of Megillat Rut. It's about two women who have to find their way home. One, it's her actual home. I mean, both of them have tremendous walls and barriers and thresholds to cross. Both are coming from very, very uh, difficult places. 
And I, I like to use the term, because it's, it's an English term, it's called picking up the pieces. What do I mean by picking up the pieces? Naomi and Ruth both have had their lives shattered. And so if you're looking for Megillat Ruth in the blue books, it's on page 269. If you have a Tanakh, um, I'm going to be right there in Perek Aleph in a minute. Megillat Ruth brings everything we're discussing together. It, it harmonizes it in such a beautiful way because it speaks to the agriculture and it speaks to an agriculture that was otherwise uh, a famine. It was otherwise all washed up. It was otherwise finished. I mean, if you ever saw the land of Israel when it's not a famine, it's beige and dry and arid and hard. It's not so easy to plant there. I mean, today, Baruch Hashem, with all the technology and the irrigation, the landscape is completely different and you'll see a ton of green. But in order to take this dry, arid land and turn it into fertile ground to begin with was difficult. Now, add on top of it the challenge of a famine. And we see two different approaches. Naomi loses her husband and her two children. And the only way she knows how to pick up the pieces is by going back to the same place where she started. And in some cases, yeah, we say go back to basics, go back to the beginning, let's go back, let's, let's, let's you know, glue back you know, the pieces that had broken along the way. What Naomi is doing in her mind, you know, she's actually trying, she's, she's re-experiencing her language is one that keeps going back to thinking that her, um, her resurgence or her regrowth or her uh, um, rebuilding is going to come from elements of the past. The difference between her and Ruth, our Ruth does not go back to the past. Ruth takes a completely there, even though they're traveling together physically, they're emotionally going in opposite directions. Ruth is going back to her hometown and her neighbors and her fields, but Ruth is charting new territory. She's going in a completely opposite direction. And in doing so, what Naomi does is she relives her dreadful nightmare. She talks about it. She says, I am Mara, Melea, Halachti. She keeps talking about what she had, what she lost. Hashem has punished me. Don't call me Naomi anymore. She keeps going back to those places. And in fairness to Naomi, she does teach us some beautiful life lessons. If we want to see um, in verse, uh, I want to say six, vatakom, you know how much I love that word. She does do the make this comeback. And she does stand up. He vekaloteha, her and her daughter-in-laws. And it's important for us to recognize 
when it says she stands up, he vekaloteha, maybe we picture her holding on to the two shoulders of her two daughter-in-laws, and there's nothing wrong with that. And maybe the Torah is saying the people in our orbit, the people closest to us, our family, they're here for us to lean on. They're placed within our reach so that they could help us get up. And it's a very humbling pasuk vatakom hivekaloteha because it says that it speaks to us. You know, we're very proud. No, no, I got this. I could handle it. I could do it. I don't need your help. We do. When we fall down, we need the help of those around us, the help of the people in our household. It's okay to lean on them. And that's what's going to help us through these challenging times. Then it says, Maybe she does teshuvah. Maybe she returns physically. Maybe she returns morally, emotionally from sedemoav. And then the most beautiful word is because why? Because while she was in Stemoab, she heard, Ki pakad Hashem et lahem lachem. Those are my favorite words, possibly, of the whole Megillah. She heard that Hashem remembered his people. And in remembering his people, we know the word pakad. There's a 20-minute class, so I can't go through it now. But we know that the word for pakad, the translation, is really, he rendered the impossible possible. He took a land that was dry, arid, beige, and hard, and he didn't just give them wheat. He didn't just give them rain. He gave them lachem. He gave them the finished product. Again, today we go to the supermarket, so maybe we're not so aware. But to get bread, hamotzi lechem min ha'aretz, is a year-long process. You put in the seeds, you let it grow, you cut it, you separate the wheat from the chaff, you grind it. There's an entire process to get to the bread. And this is what Naomi is seeing. She is hearing that the God who remembers, the God who remembered Sarah, the God who remembered the Jews and took them out of Egypt, the God who is Poked, and since we brought in Yom Kippur, the God who is Poked is, is not only going to forgive, but he's also going to uh, sustain, and he's going to be a nourishing God. And in hearing these things, Vatetse min hamakom, maybe I changed my mind, maybe for a seven is my favorite, because it says, Vatetse min hamakom tashama. What do you mean she left the place where she was? We just heard that she left, one verse earlier, she returned from Stemoav. What are you telling me? She left the place that she was at. We know what this means. She left the emotional place that she was at. She left her baggage behind. But in leaving her baggage behind, she still constantly has this draw or this pull to the past. And she needs to, she says that she doesn't need her daughter-in-laws. She tells them, lechna, shovna. She tries to push them away. She thinks that maybe she could get this done herself. But of course, Ruth knows better. And Ruth knows that Naomi, left to herself, is going to wallow in the past and just keep reliving her trauma. And so 
however you want to see Naomi's strengths, what was it that propelled her to move forward? Whether it was that she leaned on the people closest to her, even though she tried to pull them away, she did vatakom hivakalotea, she did get up from them. She did hear that God was a savior and would remember her. There's only one piece to Naomi that's missing in her whole story. Her strength keeps coming from without, from external sources. Her strength is coming from God. Her strength is coming from her family, from her daughter-in-laws, from her kinsmen, from her neighbors. Her strength keeps coming from all of these sources, but she needs Ruth more than anything else. Because in all of the strengths that they show for Naomi, I don't believe that she's portrayed as having inner strength of her believing that her strength comes from within. Look, when somebody deals with a trauma, when there is some type of major crisis, there are three responses, and they are freeze, flight, or fight. Naomi goes through, for sure, a freeze phase when she gets to the land of Israel. Some of the commentaries go so far as to say that Ruth has to suggest going and gleaning in the fields because Naomi is paralyzed. She is inactive. She might be, and this is a very sad reality, but people who are depressed to the point of wanting to end it all very often starve themselves to death. They don't eat. It's a, it's a scientific medical uh, um, a scenario, situation. And so we feel that Naomi, she has, yes, the help from without, and she has this faith in God to, to, to some degree, especially because she realizes that everything that came to her came from Hamar Shaddai Limeod, that Hashem has, you know, uh, uh, made my life bitter. Hashem Anabi Shaddai Herali. She does have this interaction an awareness of God, the awareness that she needs, and I should say it this way, the awareness that we need is going to require more than just counting on our community and counting on our family, which we should. They're an integral, they're the horizontal piece. They're the they're the Shemitah part to this story. They're the ones that, yes, we must interact with them. And yes, we have to have faith and trust in God. But the one piece, it's called Megillat Ruth and not Megillat Naomi, because Megillat Ruth is going to come and say to us, this is what I want you to get out of this story. I want you to dig deep, and I want you to find your inner strength. Inner strength if I had to use terms like we just saw in the book of Yehoshua, inner strength means that we are the shofar, that we blow and we herald in the salvation, we herald in our liberty, we are the ones that free ourselves 
And we, through our teruah, can crumble down even the highest, harshest walls. And with this understanding, we say, okay, so if, if we want to say that Naomi was maybe a little bit in the frozen, or maybe she was a little bit in the, um, you know, bringing her suffering with her, and it, it does lead to paralysis, and it does leave her incapacitated to a point, and it leads her stuck, it's not until Ruth gets her out of there. They say in psychology, that is the definition of a deer in headlights. They're so shocked by their own trauma that they can't move forward. And so maybe the next best, or not next best, but better than just freezing is the flight. Who would be an example of flight, for instance? The most famous person I could think of is Yonah. God asks him to do something that completely contradicts his morals, his values, his entire belief system and justice, and he runs away. Before, before we go, one second, before we go to uh, Yonah, I want to give you a perfect example of somebody who is frozen, because this will give you an image. I don't believe Naomi personifies it because she is definitely movable and she definitely has much more um, healthy reactions. But if you need the poster person for, I should let you unmute yourselves because I'm hoping that you know what I'm about to say. The perfect person who personifies freeze is the wife of Lot. She looks back, she is frozen literally for all time because she doesn't flight, because she doesn't move forward, and because she doesn't fight, she ends up being, and maybe this literally immovable, trapped in the trauma uh, picture of Lot's wife could give us a, a visual of what we don't want to be. We don't want to be trapped at the scene of the crime, seeing no way out. That's, that would be a frozen person. A flight example we said might be Yonah, but in the case of Yonah, he's more like avoidance. He wants to avoid God, and he's running away from, as opposed to running towards something, he's running away from something. And because he's running away from something, he ends up frozen, and he ends up in the bottom of his ship, and he ends up sleeping, and he ends up in his tardema in a stupor, and he ends up practically frozen to a point. So I'd like to use maybe a few different examples of what flight could be initially to lead us towards the ultimate, which is going to be fight. And flight, I could imagine Yaakov, he runs away after the whole problem he has with Esav. Or Moshe runs away. He goes to Yitro after he, his cover is blown, that he killed the Egyptian. You see, Yaakov and Moshe, for instance, they initially run away from something, but then they ultimately run towards rectification. 
Yaakov is going to come back and make peace and go to his family and build a life. And Moshe also is going to go back and he's going to actually end up being the savior of the Jewish people. So there's this idea. I want to just have this sense that there is a movement. The ideal movement, of course, is going to be this fight. And that's what I believe that Ruth is going to represent. So just to give you an idea how the agriculture really ties into this, when we have a Kayan, for instance, who's the first farmer, who ends up killing his brother, and he can't deal with his own pain and his own shame, and it's a, it's, it's, he now has this insurmountable uh, uh, wall in front of him. He can't move forward. And you know what God tells him? He says, Navinad, you need to be a perpetual, you need to be perpetually in flight. You need to keep moving perpetually. Your movement is what's going to get you out of this frozen place and into the place where you could fight literally for your life. And in doing this, you'll muster the resources in your travels, in your movement, in your flight, you will be able to garner the strength that you need to move forward. And then just to show you the perfection that is Torah, what does God tell him? When he can't seem to move forward, he says, God, Gadol my sin is too big for me to carry. Anybody who sees me is going to be panecha I have to hide from your face. Anybody who sees me is going to want to kill me. And what does God answer him? Shivatayim you come. Kain, there's this thing called the shiva. There's this thing called the seven. There's this thing called a cycle of sevens. Everything. And of course, he ends up having children. Yuval. Tuval, Yuval Kayin, all of this word, it's the first time the word Yovel even appears, is with the descendants of Kayin. God's telling Kayin what he's telling all of us, there's always a path forward. Sometimes the path may take some time, sometimes you may have to wander like Kayin, you have to be maybe a little Navinad, but at the end of the day, what is he telling Kayin? The strength has to come from you. I can give you an ot, I can give you a sign on your hand. We wear, not women, but men wear ot al yadecha, they wear tefillin. This sign and this symbol that Hashem is with us is definitely necessary to move forward. But equally as important is the knowledge that we have this inner strength that we need to keep moving and we need to finally do get to this Yovel place, this uh, Jubilee. Now, Ruth, why is she so fantastic? Because we mentioned the wife of Lot. Do you remember her? The frozen pillar of salt, the freeze? Ruth is a Moabite. And the Moabites' earliest, the inception of the of the uh, nation of Moab comes from Lot's daughter. 
She names the child Moab, Meab. I had a child from my father. Ruth has within her this ability, like her own ancestral grandmother, to do what? Not Lot's wife, that's not her mother. Her mother is Lot's daughter who does what? Who takes matters into her own hands thinks that the world is completely destroyed, believes that if she doesn't do something about the population, that Earth as we know it is gonna become extinct. And so she takes matters into her own hands. And what's so beautiful about Ruth is she has this part, this idea of if I don't go glean, we're gonna starve to death. Nobody's going to do anything for us. We need to make it happen for ourselves. But at the same time that she believes that she has to go out there and she has to make it happen, Megilat Ruth starts to bring in this other element. She starts, I told you, she goes in an opposite direction. She doesn't go back to the past. She charts a new course. And God is telling us, just get to the field, get to the Sadeh, go out there. I always say, strap your boots, tie your laces, show up, just show up. This is what Ruth, this is her story in a nutshell. She really doesn't do anything monumentous other than saying, if I don't get food, we're gonna starve to death. Hey. Who does that remind us of? It's the same story of Yehuda. That's why he goes down to Egypt. Because if we don't get food, we're going to starve to death. And Yehuda starts out also with a flight. Vayered, he goes away, he goes to the people of Canaan. But ultimately, he decides to fight. And he goes literally into a fight. Vayigash Yehuda. He's gonna fight for his survival. And what happens every time, God says, every time that you decide that you're gonna show up and you're gonna fight, and sometimes you're fighting for your life. If you're gonna fight, says God, then I'm gonna suit up and I'm gonna stand right next to you and I'm gonna fight alongside you and I'm gonna join you in your fight. And then we all know, we could hear the violins, when God's standing beside us, then what? It's a guaranteed win. It's a guaranteed win. God is gonna carry us through in the best way that he sees possible. And if we wanna talk about, if you, in case you kept your ribbons in Parashat Behad, it also speaks about the concept of the Goel in chapter 25, because the whole book of Ruth is about the Goel. So in, I left my ribbon in the wrong place, give me one second. Chapter 25 of Vayikra. Okay. So here we go. If we go to verse 24, for instance, it says, well, it's in verse 24, it says, Bechol eretz achuzatchem geula titnula aretz. 
you have to redeem the land itself. That was talking about the, uh, the laws and sabbatical years and all of that. But then verse 25 comes and says, but guess what? If your brother should become impoverished, ki so much that he has to sell his land. This word geula is going to keep appearing a gazillion times. The idea of geula in our perasha, and what does geula mean? What is redemption? So if geula is the theme of our perasha, it means that if somebody had to sell their land, sort of like Elimelech's land that needed to be redeemed because he became impoverished and his wife was impoverished and they required redemption. Do we know what redemption is? Do we understand what Geulah really means? We always say, oh, we should see the Geulah. Well, what is Geulah anyway? And of course, if we go to the first place, you're going to love the first place where Geulah appears. Yaakov uses it in his Berachat to Yosef when he says, Hamalach ha-goel oti mikol ra yivarech et ha-nearim b'kareh b'hem shemi. Right? V'shem avotai Abraham v'yitzchak v'yidgu larov b'kerev ha-aretz. What is Yaakov's blessing of a ge'ulah? What does a ge'ulah look like? Who requires ge'ulah? So Yaakov is saying, I was at a place, at a stage where I needed Geulah, and the Geulah that I got came from God's angel. What is he telling us reading these verses? Yes, help in the physical world is on the way, because Yaakov blessed our people that this Malach should perpetually be with us, but who needs Geulah? You know who needs Geulah? The Geulah is going to come like, and the terminology is so beautiful, it's going to come to the people who least think that they are savable. They're like the Dagim in the Kerev Haaretz. They are like fish out of water. How long could a fish live out of water? A fish cannot live out of water. The people who require geulah, they don't have wind, they don't have air, they don't have breath, because the next geulah is going to be the word's going to appear in how God's going to redeem us from Egypt. What is Geulah really? We read it here about the Geulah for the land and redeem the land, but do we recognize that the people that we are redeeming who have been impoverished are like fish out of water? This is what they, when we are going to find the Goel for root, when Boaz is going to make a search and conduct a search to see who's going to be her Goel, which he ultimately becomes. Do we recognize the job of the goel? And do we recognize what they're actually doing? They're actually breathing life into something or someone who would otherwise become, and here's a very important word, extinct. 
Because if Naomi's daughter-in-law doesn't have any more children, the entire line of Eli Melech is wiped out. His wife, his sons, it's over. They don't have sons. Say goodbye. Game over. So when we talk about here, the land, and we say, oh, if one brother has to sell his land, his other brother should redeem it. I think there's something much stronger being said here. And it's not just the obligation for us to make sure that we return the breath and the ability to survive to somebody else, but it's asking us all to be the goel. You see, in Hamalach HaGoeloti Yaakov saying, how was I saved? I was saved because God intervened through an angel. And how did we leave Egypt? God came and he was the Goel and he redeemed us. And even the third Goel that appears in Torah, which is, this is the one in our Perashah, this Goel story is the fourth time, but the third one is Nachita Bechastecha Am Zuga'alta. In Shirat Hayam, God is, Moshe is singing and saying, God, with your chesed, you transported us, this nation that you were a goel of. So in the first three instances, from Bereshit into Shemot, the goel was always God. And now, when you come to the land, who's going to be the goel, my friends? Whose job is it to do the work, the holy work of God and be a goel. Hashem is handing us the goel keys and saying, you're going to be a goel now. My goel, I did for Yaakov. I got you out of Egypt. I got you through the waters. Those were my goels. What are you going to do to mirror that? How are you going to be a goel in you, with your people and in your community? And so if that's the idea, then what is Megillat Ruth telling us? It's defining kingship for us. It's telling us that A, in order to be a king, you need to fight. And kings were the warriors. The kings back in the day didn't just sit on a throne and get a crown placed on their head and be paraded in golden carriages. The kings were in the front lines and they were first and foremost warriors. They were fighting the wars to protect their people. And so a king, and if we are gonna be our own kings, of course, if we're gonna be a mamlechet, if we're gonna be kings ourselves, then we have to exercise and nourish this part of us that understands that fighting means getting into it with your own hands and getting the job done. This is Ruth, so on her part, she's a fighter. And you know what Boaz is? Boaz is a goel. He's a redeemer. He's the one that's gonna breathe life into a family that would otherwise be lifeless. And so if the kingship is going to be a combination, a combination of trust in God or act in a godly way 
or perpetuate the actions and the goel that God has started to bring his people to this point. Look, a king on earth is a reflection of our king in heaven. And if God, our king in heaven, is a goel, then our kings have to be goel. And if we're all kings, then we all have to have this inner strength and ability to move forward. And I think what most shows this whole story, and it shows it so beautifully, is actually the Haftarah for Bechukotai. So before we go into the Haftarah of Bechukotai, those of you with a Tanakh, it's in Sefer Yirmiyahu, chapter 16. In the blue books, it's page 1179. Um, and before we go into Parashat Bechukotai, I mean the Haftarah for Bechukotai, we should say Chazak, Chazak Benit Chazek. We are completing this week in Shul. Sefer Vayikra, may Hashem give us the strength to go Michael El Chayel, to move forward in learning and uh, internalizing all of the beauty and light that the Torah has to give us. That's Venit Chazek. We should have the strength to continue to be able to learn together. But I happen to come into this Haftarah because I think it speaks perfectly to the points we're making today. So just so you know that Bechukotai is about if you will follow my laws and my statutes, then there will be blessings. And if you don't follow my laws and my statutes, then there will be the opposite. In the Haftarah that Yirmiyahu writes, he is actually speaking, it's the time of Yehoiakim, the son of Yoshiahu. Yoshiahu starts out horrible and repents, but um, Yehoiakim is the king that he's speaking to who is very, very evil in his ways. And the way that the Haftarah approaches it, rather than start with the blessings and then go to the curses, it starts with the curses and move towards the blessings. If you'll see in verse 5, Ko Amar Hashem, so it's Yirmiyahu, chapter 16. I'm sorry, actually, the Haftarah starts at the end of chapter 16, but now we're in chapter 17, verse 5. Ko Amar Hashem, this is what God says, Arur Hagever. Cursed is the man who puts all his trust and faith in God. And then you'll see verse 7. If you want to sing along, feel free. <laughs> You're muted anyway. <laughs> it starts with Baruch HaGever, Asher Yiftach Bashem, Vehaya Hashem Miftacho. It's, we know this, this song very well. It comes from here. What is Baruch HaGever? So it's saying if you're going to put your trust in other people, you're going to be lost. If you put your trust in Hashem, then Hashem is going to be your, your boteach, your security. And then it uses these words. You're going to be like an etz shatul almayim, like a tree that is um, like a watered tree that is sitting by the waters. And then here's our word. 
ve'al yuval yishlach shoreshav. The English is going to say, it's going to spread its roots alongside the brooks. I'd like to say, ve'al yuval yishlach shoreshav. The yuval will be your roots, your place, your strength, your core, your kenin, your uh, uh, core will be the same core as the tree who is drawing water, right? This idea of a tree, when it draws water, it's drawing its happiness, it's drawing its lifeline. Here they're going to use this word, Yuval, I believe to say, if we can draw our strength and we can be like this tree and we could draw our strength and what comes out of us is the sound of freedom and a proclamation of liberty and an understanding that we bring our own geulah, then we will be extra fruitful. I'm going to end with this idea in the Kodesh HaKodashim, because if we're going to start with Har Sinai, then I want to bring it full circle and maybe bring all the points a little bit together. If we're going to start at Har Sinai, we're going to say that that was the opportunity for God to convene face-to-face with all of us through the Yovel. And that didn't work out, so we built a Mishkan, and he said, okay, again, I'm going to come, my presence is going to rest between the two Keruvim and is going to reside above, in the Kodesh HaKodashim, above the Aron. What was in the Aron were the tablets, the luchot, and the little jar. Who remembers the little jar, the souvenir mana, the souvenir man that was also meant to be kept in the Kodesh HaKodashim? So we actually have two things. We have the luchot and we have the man. And these two are, the ho- are in the holiest of places. So the mana might represent our trust in God, our physical needs. We need to eat. We need to be near God. We need to be like that plant that's near the water, that's going to absorb, that's going to be nourished. That might be something that the man is going to represent, and it's something that came every day, and it's something that has to be worked on daily. The luchot might represent Torah study, and this idea that we don't just come to God with our physical selves, but we come with our intellect, we come with our soul, we come from this wanting to learn from God. The only two blessings that we're told to make in the Torah is a blessing when we eat, ve'achalta ve'savata u'berachta, and the other blessing that we're asked to make is blessing before we learn Torah. These two blessings, I believe, are here to say they are the spirit of what is Shavuot, which is, yes, the learning of the Torah represented by the Luchot, and the entire agricultural piece, nourishing piece, uh, sustenance and physical part that is represented by the entire Megillah and the enti- all of the agricultural laws. I don't think it's one or the other. I think what the Torah is offering us or portraying for us 
is, and it's right here in the um, end of the Haftarah, the last line you're going to find familiar also, so I'll read it out loud. Adonai God heal me, and I will be healed. God, please um, save me, and I will be saved. Because God, you are my praise. So God is the source of our healing. God is the source of our geulah. It comes from Torah, and it also comes from the idea that we have to work, and we have to toil the land, and we have to make it happen. And so I'd like to end today's class by saying, I believe that this is what the Omid is uh, propelling us towards, the um, trajectory, the fight, the uh, effort that we need to put in, where at the same time, we do need the Naomi component, and we do need the belief that Hashem is going to help us, and we do need the root part that we have to help ourselves. Together, these ideas hopefully will be a winning combination for our ultimate Geulah, from the Geulah that will be a complete redemption, a redemption of body, of soul, and of mind. I thank you all for joining today. Have a beautiful, beautiful week. I think I'm I... mean to everything. <laughs>